Welcome to the Early American Brass Band Podcast. My name is Chris Troiano, and I'm joined by my co-host, Stephen Canastrisi. Hello, everybody. And we're really excited to be here for episode number two. We'll be focusing on the music of the Eastman Wind Ensemble under the direction of Frederick Fennell. Now, Stephen, I know that you did your undergraduate degree up at Eastman. Um, Yes. I know when we go to the Marine Barracks here in D.C., you walk in where the Marine Band performs, and there's a giant statue of John Philip Sousa in the courtyard. I always wondered, does like Frederick Fennell kind of have that same presence or that same, uh, you know, held to such a, a revered status in Eastman? Yeah, I mean, there's no statue of him there, but um, I mean, everybody knows who he is up there. And it, actually, on the in the main building at Eastman, um, you go upstairs. Uh, to the second floor and that that main hallway on the second floor there are portraits of all the professors who taught there who retired um when when they retire they get a portrait painted and it's hung in that uh in that second floor main hallway there so he's got a he's got a big painting there um and the library has you know a lot of his his stuff uh his old um special collections and things and the, the inside of the eastman theater does have statues in it right yeah, it does. It. Uh, oh man, this would be really bad if I was wrong. But I think one of them's a Mozart, the other one's Beethoven, like on the sides of the stage. Okay. Um, yeah, <laughs> but he does not have a statue in the Eastman Theater. And if that is wrong, you're going to get a letter from the Eastman like Alumni Association. I know they're going to take away my diplomas. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> So as you might guess by the name, the Eastman School of Music was founded by George Eastman, um, the the camera guy, the Kodak company. It's his his thing. And um, George Eastman loved the arts uh, and was a huge supporter of the arts. Um, and he thought that Rochester should have a good music school. So in 1921, he um, suggested that to the president of the University of Rochester, and his name was Rush Rees, and the library at the University of Rochester is named after him. It's called the, the Rush Rees Library. Um, but anyway, back in 1918 was when George Eastman suggested to President Rush Rees that um, the U of R, University of Rochester, should have a music school. Um, and then in 1921, George Eastman actually bought the um the rights to the dkg institute of musical arts which was already it was already an established organization um it was established in 1913 so he bought the rights to that school and along with the land uh that the buildings are currently on they're on gibbs street and main street um and he gifted that to the university of rochester um so the eastman school of music was officially founded in in 1921 um, and Frederick Fennell, our, our main guy here, he was a student there. Um, but before he was a student there, he had to be born. Uh, he was born in 1914 in Cleveland, that, Ohio. That's usually the case. That usually comes first. Yeah, yeah. You got to <laughs> exist before you can go somewhere. But uh, yeah, so 1914, Cleveland, Ohio. 
our our main man Frederick Fennell uh, was born, um, and I was reading that he didn't really come from a musical family, but it's interesting that he went on then to become such a major player in the world of music. Um, he was a percussionist; that was his chosen instrument, and he chose that. Um, after spending some time at Camp Zeke, which Chris, you mentioned was a hobby club that was made by uh, Frederick's uncle, Charlie. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I was reading one of the, the books that will list in the program and the, uh, the episode or this episode uh, is a book that I got called Fortissimo. It's a bio discography of Frederick Fennell by Roger, Roger Rickson. And, and yeah, in that book, it talks about how Frederick Fennell uh, attended this camp put on by his uncle every summer from Memorial Day to Labor Day. And I had a big variety of activities that were hosted at this camp. But uh, Frederick's favorite part of it was always being involved in a fife and drum corps that, that was at the camp. And he often cites that as being one of his major influences into uh, enjoying music history in general all throughout his life. Frederick Fennell said that when he wasn't studying a score or working on his conducting or doing something directly with music, uh, he was reading history books. So those were kind of his two main passions, and, and it all kind of stems from his time at uh, Camp Zeke. Nice. Yeah, you can really tell that he's you know, excited about the history and the music. Like when you're reading, we'll talk about it later, I'm sure, the liner notes for this album. His writing you know, just kind of drips with excitement. Um, yeah, so it's really neat. So... So he went on from there, graduated high school, and he studied at what's now the Interlochen Arts Camp. Uh, at the time, it was called the National Music Camp. Um, and so he went there to study, and I was reading that the bandmaster, Albert Harding, chose him to play the bass drum in the National High School Band of 1931. I couldn't really find much information about what that was. I guess it was just associated with the National Music Camp. Hmm. now known as Interlochen. But that band was conducted by John Philip Sousa on July 26th of 1931. And um, the John Philip Sousa had a big influence on Frederick Fresnel. I was reading somewhere that um, Frederick Fresnel's dad took him to a, to a Sousa concert. Um, and Frederick was really struck with the Black Horse Troop March, um, which explains why he you know, went on to record that a few times with various groups. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember playing that um, w- when I was in the, the Eastman Wind Orchestra, because the, the, there are two. There's the Eastman Wind Ensemble, which is now is kind of for the upperclassmen and the, and the grad students. Mm-hmm. And your first two years, your freshman, sophomore year, as a wind player, um, well, as a euphonium player in particular, uh, you sit in the in the wind orchestra, and that's kind of where you play a lot of the, the more standard rep. Uh, and then when you get to the wind ensemble, it's a mix of the standard rep and some new stuff. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I get sidetracked. Um, so John Philip yeah, Sousa. Man. You want to talk about getting sidetracked for a second? When my dad visited here, what, last year, I think, and he met you for the first time? I think we went to the Dogfish Head Ale House for dinner or something like that. Yeah. And you, you guys talked for like, two hours just BSing different like Eastman stories. My dad did his masters at Eastman. Yeah, it was hysterical. Your dad's awesome. (laughs) Yeah. But, uh, yeah. So, yeah, so John Philip Sousa had a a big influence on Frederick Fennell. Um, And then from Interlochen, or the National Music Camp, uh, Frederick Fennell went on to be a student at Eastman. Um, When he was at the National Music Camp, Howard Hansen came and 
and did a few things with the students there. And Howard Hansen was the director of the School of Music when Frederick Fennell went there as a student. Um, so he graduated from Eastman with a bachelor's degree in 1937, and then again with a master's degree in 1939. Uh, and he was very active while he was a student there. He organized the first University of Rochester marching band, and they played for the football games at the U of R. And then when the football season was over, uh, they would come indoors and do indoor concerts do they still uh, have do they still have a marching band uh yeah there's like a pet band but it's it's run at the university of rochester and gotcha. a few eastman students every now and again will go over and play uh, but it, now that's predominantly a, a university of rochester group gotcha yeah so then most people know Frederick Fennell or the big point in their mind when they think of Frederick Fennell is the Eastman Wind Ensemble, which he founded in um, 1952. And before the Eastman Wind Ensemble, you'd have, we mentioned it a little bit in the first episode, these bands would be enormous bands, you know, with 24 or so clarinet players, huge brass sections, because a lot of the music they were playing was orchestral transcriptions, and they wanted to mimic the orchestral sound with the size of the band. Um, so that's then that kind of the tradition that Fred Finnell was coming from, and he had this idea to make a smaller group that more closely resembled the size of an orchestral wind section, but of course with the addition of saxophone, a saxophone section uh, and some euphonium players. Um, and that's kind of the model of the Eastman Wind Ensemble. Um, and he you know went on to conduct that group obviously he was the founder um and he has a very prolific recording output with the eastman wind ensemble most of which was originally released on the mercury uh label um and you know after eastman he went on to do a number of different things and probably one of the more major ones was he was the conductor of the tokyo kasei wind orchestra in japan um for for a long time and he's done a lot of recordings with them too. So yeah, that's kind of where all this is coming from. Some of the history, the background of, of the school and the, and the Eastman wind ensemble. Now I'm just curious, do you know off the top of your head was the usage of the term wind ensemble used for the first time by Fennell for this, for the Eastman wind ensemble? Yeah. I'm not sure if he coined that term, but, um, maybe I, I, I didn't run across it anywhere kind of before the formation of the Eastman Wind Ensemble. So I, th I think that was kind of his, because it, it was his idea to pare the group down to a smaller size, kind of a one on the one on a part kind of deal. Um, so I think then the Wind Ensemble term is kind of what, what he started to use in reference to that smaller group and it, and it stuck around. For sure. And that's always, you know, what a lot of times people associate with the word Wind Ensemble is Eastman and Frederick Fennell. So definitely, uh, yeah, at the very least, he, he popularized it in mainstream use, I think, for sure. Yeah, and then jump fast-forwarding to present day, I mean, you kind of see colleges, universities are where most of these wind ensembles and stuff, because um, other than the military bands, there there aren't really many professional bands. I mean, there's the Dallas Winds, formerly known as the Dallas Wind Symphony, I think. and um, the Royal Hawaiian Band in uh, Oahu. Right, and then there's the Tokyo Kasei Wind wind orchestra uh but i mean you hear all these different terms now that kind of refer to that smaller ensemble uh you know there's wind orchestra wind ensemble symphonic wind ensemble symphonic winds um yeah there's, stuff there's like all that kinds so. of things now yeah right yeah, for sure yeah so if you're wondering why we're talking about frederick Fennell and the eastman wind ensemble on a podcast titled the early american brass band podcast uh, it's because he created 
a landmark recording in 1960 titled The Civil War, Its Music and Its Sounds. Uh, Frederick Fennell, as we mentioned earlier, was a, mentioned earlier, was a huge history buff. And uh, as the centennial of the Civil War was approaching in 1961, he knew that he wanted to do a project to help commemorate it. So he was able to use a grant from the University of Rochester, uh, and they were able to help fund this project through the University of Rochester and Mercury Records, their special projects division. And they were able to help create a recording for the, uh, the Civil War centennial. We mentioned at the end of our first episode when we featured uh, the Ken Burns documentary CD as our featured album, uh, we were talking about the, the rise of different recording technologies and a very, very brief history of Civil War music in the recorded medium. Uh, most of the time, from the 1890s up until basically 1960, the majority of the recordings that were being produced featuring Civil War music was primarily either folk instruments such as uh, fiddle, guitar, uh, that type of thing, and vocal music. There was an instance of an orchestra recording music. Uh, the Edison Symphony Orchestra recorded the, a piece called The Battle of Manassas, uh, in 1899 on a wax cylinder but other than that the majority of recordings were like I said folk music and vocal music that was until uh, Fred Fennell recorded this album in 1960 again like I said for the commemoration of the Civil War uh, he got the idea to specifically uh, begin this project when he was touring the Gettysburg battlefield in 1956, he went into the gift shop, the visitor center at Gettysburg, and uh, purchased a book that was like a visual guided tour of the Battle of Gettysburg. And similar to what we said last episode of you and I having our interest in all this music being sparked once we came to Virginia, uh, his history love was sparked by this tour of Gettysburg, and he began uh, wanting to become more invested in this music hands-on and uh, you know it inspired him to do this project to commemorate the Civil War Centennial in 1960. Right and he talks in the liner notes about like the specific section of, of this book that he bought while he was there. Um, it was a so kind of what inspired this album for him was a quote that was included in in that book that he bought. Um, the quote is from Lieutenant Colonel Arthur J.L. Fremantle. It's a very Civil War era name, you know, all the names <laughs> abbreviated there. But um, so he was a he was a British uh, lieutenant colonel, and he was following Robert E. Lee around, I, I think. Um, and it, it's portrayed very uh, well in the Gettysburg film. They show uh, Fremantle walking around following the Confederate Army during the Gettysburg campaign. Yeah. So there was a quote from Fremantle's diary or. Uh, notes uh, from the second day of the Battle of Gettysburg. And reading this quote is what Fred Fennell, um, when he really had this idea, and the, the quote from, from the notes reads, um, when the cannonade was at its height, a Confederate band of music between the cemetery and ourselves began to play polkas and waltzes, which sounded very curious, accompanied by the hissing and bursting of the shells. Um, and Fennell details in the liner notes that he was really struck by this account, and he thought that... Um, 
quote, these bizarre moments in American musical and military history had to be recaptured in sound. And then he went and found the particular spot where he thought um, Fremantle was when he wrote that. And sitting on a cannon is when he kind of had the idea for this album. So I thought that was a really cool little moment there that kind of captures the, the catalyst for making this monumental recording. Yeah. So getting into some of the, the finer details of the album itself, when we first began uh, doing research for this episode, we were looking around on various sources online, and we kept on seeing this date of 1958 popping up, I wouldn't even say on a few, like I would right, even almost say the majority of websites on the internet cited this recording as being produced in 1958 yeah for sure it was it was the majority of websites i looked at like i think only maybe one or two had the correct date of 1960 but but it's strange because if you just you know look in the liner notes and and we you know collected a bunch of other physical sources uh as well it's explicitly clear that this album was rehearsed for recorded and released in 1960 uh, in some of the materials we have, Fennell went into such fine detail to say that they began rehearsing for this album on October 31st, 1960. And they were basically rehearsing for a large gala that was going to be hosted uh, later on in mid-December. So in December of 1960, December 11th to be specific, they performed this three-hour gala concert after performing or after rehearsing since October and they then recorded the album over the course of four days December 13th 14th 15th and 16th actually in the liner notes and mentions that the recording time for this album was December 14th to 16th but then Fennell later went on to correct that in that Fortissimo book that I mentioned earlier he said that they actually began recording the album the day prior, December 13th, and the band played 13th, 14th, and 15th, and December 16th was reserved for all the vocal tracks that were utilized on the recording, which those vocal tracks were the members of the Eastman Wind Ensemble singing. Yeah, it's fascinating to me how, well, maybe it's not that, I don't know kind of how long it, it takes to record and produce an album, but if he had this idea in 1956, and the album was released in 1960. I mean, that's only that's only four years. Back then, I mean, you didn't have email or anything, so you couldn't like email all your friends and you know plan this over then. So I, I imagine things moved a little slower. But it seems like a very quick process to me uh, yeah, for a- for an album that that is this good, you know, and and well researched and and thorough. Yeah. Well, we'll see that he actually had a lot of help from members of the Eastman Wind Ensemble itself. You know, his own students. Uh, played a large hand in creating this project. Uh, we'll get to that in a second. But yeah, I agree. It it must be a testament to the connections that Frederick Fennell made in the band world and in the recording world that he was just able to, I don't know, in our eyes, kind of fast track this project. It kind of reminds me of uh, hearing when we would attend Tuba Christmas in Rockefeller Center in New York City. Mm-hmm. We would hear how Harvey Phillips had this idea of wanting to create this massive tuba concert of Christmas carols and have it on the ice of Rockefeller Center. And the people at Rockefeller Center, you know, didn't want to have a bunch of tubas, you know, taking up, 
you know, one of the most iconic spots in New York City during Christmas time. Uh, and they asked for a reference, and Harvey Phillips gave them a reference, and the people at the Rockefeller Ice Rink called that reference, and it was Leonard Bernstein, and he was able to vouch for Harvey Phillips, and now Tuba Christmas has been going on for decades. So kind of a short little aside, but just reminded me of the, the power of making connections and how quickly and efficiently you're able to get things rolling if you have a an idea that seems a little bit unrealistic you know just be nice to everybody and <laughs> you'll be able to accomplish anything if you if you know the right people can't get a better reference than leonard bernstein yeah especially in new york city right oh right totally <laughs> yeah and that's that's the place for it so um like we mentioned this this uh lp this vinyl record was released in 1960 uh, it was later re-released in 1990 uh on cd it was the first Mercury recording of a series of Mercury recordings that were to be re-released as a part of like a historical series. But so this was the first re-release of that. But unfortunately, due to the CD maximum length, they had to cut a number of uh, a number of pieces from the CD. The original recording was done in two volumes, and each volume had two LP discs in it. So it was a total of four discs equaling eight sides. So it's eight sides of music, and they were able to get it onto two CDs. But unfortunately, like I mentioned, uh, a number of recordings were cut from those CDs. They had to remove the Cape May Polka, Rachel Waltz's, the Star Spangled Banner, and Marching Through Georgia. So I'm sure many of us are familiar with this recording, but I'm sure we're familiar with the CD recording most intimately because that's you know what we have the easiest access to nowadays. I was blown away that this CD re-release is missing four of those tracks, so I almost just want to go out and get an LP and transfer it over on one of those digital turntables just so I could have the complete set. It, my OCD is not okay with having an incomplete <laughs> recording <laughs> in my iTunes. No, I feel you there. Yeah, it's it's like you know that four of these recordings are out there and you've never heard them and it, you know it just drives you nuts it's like a a, a rediscovery of rediscovering this brass band music. <laughs> right yeah <laughs> so the the final side of the last record so the eighth side is a collection of sounds and firearms uh and artillery being fired this was the first time that these types of sounds were recorded on any type of um mass consumer listening medium so the American people were able to the first time hear the band music, fife and drum music, bugle calls, and gunfire and artillery fire from the Civil War. So it really, uh, you know, the the title of the album really earned its name by calling itself Civil War, its music, and its sounds. So what really strikes me about this album is how authentic they tried to be. And we'll talk about the instruments a little bit later, but these sounds, Chris, that you're talking about right now were recorded at Gettysburg and the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. And they brought in weapons experts and military experts to supervise these. Um, the firing and the loading and, and the liner notes has a lot of history on the weapons as well. Uh, if, if anyone has the album and is looking at the liner notes, there's there's a substantial section in there about uh, these military experts and, and the weapons they used. 
So the musicians that performed on this 1960 recording were actually all full-time students at the Eastman School of Music at the time of the recording in 1960. Uh, it's really interesting looking at the personnel lineup on this record and you know kind of doing a little bit of research as to who's who. It's really uh, there's a really significant number of professional musicians that played in major symphony orchestras uh, that appeared on this record as students. It kind of reminds me of myself as a euphonium player listening to the Tennessee Tech Tuba Ensemble and looking at the liner notes in there and seeing who's playing on it and being blown away that I'm listening to you know all these symphony and military band tuba players on this recording or like a similar thing with like the North Texas Wind Symphony. You know, it, it's really cool seeing this, but with uh, a 1960 recording, it's really cool. The The first one that, that really jumped out to me was Roger Bobo is playing E-flat bass on this recording. So the tuba voice, uh, Roger Bobo was playing on it. He graduated Eastman in 1961 and then later went on to play tuba with the Los Angeles Philharmonic and was very active in recording for Hollywood scores and films you know, all throughout the, the mid-20th century. Is he still playing uh, on, on movie soundtracks? I don't think so. I think he's more or less retired from playing, and his main... Uh, th I, he's always been you know, a very major pedagogue uh, of the tuba, but I think now he's more focused on, um, on teaching. But, I mean, if you go look at you know, all the major movie soundtracks... Um, you know, I, th I could be wrong, but I think he played tuba on Jaws and, you know, a couple other, um, there's a, there's a website, I think it's called, if you just Google brass sections in movies, there's a website that, uh, you can click on a, on a movie poster and it'll flip around and tell you who the brass players are and That's you'll find his name all over that website. <laughs> That's really cool. Yeah. Uh, but the next musician that was kind of interesting to me, I kept on seeing this name pop up over and over again. Uh, both with actually the first episodes featured recording the Ken Burns documentary and this this album. So Robert Sheldon, Bob Sheldon, was an alto horn player in the group, and he actually helped restore a number of the brass instruments for this recording. He uh, would get a hold of some of these over-the-shoulder sax horns and fix them to be playable and to be able to function properly for this recording. So he had that type of uh, instrument repair background, probably, well, definitely uh, a background in music history because he also helped, uh, he lend, lent a number of personal instruments to Frederick Fennell for the use of this recording. So not only was he able to fix a number of the over-the-shoulder horns, but they borrowed two or three of his own personal instruments for this recording uh, as well. And then he later went on to become a curator at the Library of Congress uh, in Washington, D.C., and he also helped run the New American Brass Band that appeared alongside the Old Beth Page Brass Band on the Ken Burns Civil War soundtrack. Yeah, you got to know a guy who's into the horns if you're going to do a project like this. So it's convenient that he was a student there, you know, and just happened to be able to do all this restoration. Yeah, so, so it goes back to what we said. It's uh, the people that you know and how I said that some students were able to make this recording happen. So Bob Sheldon, you know, repaired the instruments and provided a number of the instruments. So, uh, yeah, good thing he was attending Eastman at the time or maybe this recording 
might not have happened or would have been very different without the involvement of Bob Sheldon. Right. And then uh, you go down down the list. we got some other ones listed here. Um, Boyd Hood, who was principal E-flat cornet on this recording, and there's some good playing. Um, he, yeah, he went on to – he was in the L.A. Phil and uh, was, a, was a major teacher. Um, Albert McKinnon, B-flat cornet, New Zealand National Symphony. Not bad. Uh, Robert Gillespie, he was a B-flat tenor horn player on the recording. Uh, he's, a, he's also a trombone player. Um, he was a principal trombone in the Johannesburg Opera and Symphony in, in South Africa. Um, Early Anderson, B-flat bass, trombone player, went on to be in the uh, Met Opera Orchestra. And Frederick Fennell played, um, played the fife and played on some of the fife and drum tracks. Uh, he, he played the, his field drum. Um, and you have a note here, Chris, that one of the bass drummers, um, John Galm, used Frederick's personal Civil War bass drum and beater. I bet the whole time he was paranoid about dropping that beater or something. Oh, yeah. I've I've held some of my teacher's euphoniums in the past, like handing it to them or something, and I was sweating that I was going to drop their euphonium. So I can't imagine having a piece of wood and smacking it over and over again. That's, you know, at that time, 100 years old. Right. Yeah, I, I would have been petrified to pl- play using that thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So all these really high-caliber players were playing on period brass instruments throughout this recording. Uh, a lot of these instruments were owned by the National Museum in Washington, D.C. Uh, the Rochester Historical Society lent them a few instruments to play on. Uh, the Rochester Museum of Arts and Science had an instrument or two, and then about uh, three instruments were lent to the ensemble by two of the members in the o- ensemble, uh, Bob Sheldon being one of them. So the the liner notes of this album does a really good job of outlining which instruments were used, in, in, complete with pictures, <laughs> and uh, who played on which instrument for each recording. So just kind of going down the list here, which I, I find really interesting. Um, they had two E-flat over-the-shoulder cornets, soprano voice, two B-flat over-the-shoulder soprano voice cornets, one E-flat over-the-shoulder alto, one B-flat bass, one E-flat bass, and all of those instruments were made by John Howard Foote, uh, and they were stamped as being made in New York and Chicago. So... In the liner notes, like I just said, that these foot New York Chicago instruments, if they were actually all stamped that way, which the the liner notes does a pretty good job at, you know, providing slightly different in, uh, information for each instrument. So I, I'm assuming it's all accurate and not just like copy and pasted. But if these instruments are all stamped as New York and Chicago, I saw uh, through some of my friends that are involved in the Old Town Brass Band down in Alabama. Uh, the Old Town Brass website has a good catalog of different early instrument makers in the United States, and they say for foot instruments, if they are stamped with saying New York and Chicago, that manufacturer only started stamping it that way in 1868. So all those over-the-shoulder instruments that I just mentioned are definitely the right decade and the right uh, <laughs> the right century, but they are most likely not wartime, not used during the war, if that stamping is actually correct the way that it's notated. Uh, A few of the other instruments, they had an E-flat soprano and an E-flat bass both over the shoulder. 
uh, manufactured by DC Hall. That's a Boston manufacturer, uh, possibly made in 1862, again, based on some of that Old Town Brass information. And another E-flat over-the-shoulder soprano made by Clem, a Philadelphia maker. Uh, that was one of the instruments that was actually uh, owned by one of the ensemble members. Another E-flat over-the-shoulder alto horn made by Martin and Pullman and Company uh, in New York. There's, uh, according to a book titled Musical Instrument Makers of New York by Nancy Groch, or Gross, not exactly sure how to pronounce the last name. Sorry, Nancy. Uh, she mentioned she'll that, be in touch. Yeah, I'm sure that we'll get a letter from her too, just like you're getting one from Eastman. Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> uh, our first fan mail. Great. Um, so uh, she mentioned similar to the Old Town guys that if uh, the if this alto horn over the shoulder is stamped Martin Pullman and Company in New York, then it was likely made between 1873 and 1878. So again, kind of dates it a little bit after the war. Um, there's an E-flat upright alto horn that was owned by one of the ensemble members, manufactured in Paris. Another E-flat alto upright horn owned by a member that was likely imported from Czechoslovakia. There's an unmarked over-the-shoulder tenor horn. Uh, Frederick Fennell suspects that that instrument might be French or Viennese. Um, an E-flat over-the-shoulder bass marked Mackie Rochester and another E-flat over-the-shoulder bass that's unmarked, but Frederick Fennell thinks that that instrument is uh, made in America, not not a import like a French Viennese or yeah, French or Viennese or Czechoslovakian. So like I mentioned, uh, Bob Sheldon was an ensemble member that helped restore some of the brass instruments. He had some help from Norman Schweikert, and together they helped maintain and restore the brass instruments for the recording. So that's a, a quick little overview of which instruments were being used and some dates and manufacturing locations for, for some of these instruments. Yeah, and sticking with the brass, um, the some of the bugle um, excerpts on this album were played on the Appomattox bugle, which was the, the bugle that sounded at the surrendering of uh, General Lee to General Grant at Appomattox Courthouse on uh, April 9th, 1865. And that bugle was played by Boyd Hood, who was playing principal E-flat cornet throughout the recording. Um, and then moving down to the drums, uh, we've got some some period drums here. Um, the fife and drum sections of, of this album, um, most of those drums were from Camp Zeke, the camp that Frederick Fennell grew up going to that was run by his uncle. So most of the drums were there and from there. And then there was one eagle drum, which was manufactured in 1861 on Long Island by A. Rogers, not Aaron Rogers, uh, <laughs> the, the, the quarterback, uh, but another A. Rogers. Um, and that drum was in the private collection of a percussionist named William F. Ludwig. Um, he was a drum inventor and manufacturer. I uh, started the Ludwig Drum Company, which is one of the, the major ones, uh, current day drum companies. Um, and Fred Fennell and uh, William Ludwig became friends at Interlochen. That's how they knew each other. Another one of those connections there that was made and uh, kind of facilitated pulling this off. And then if you listen really closely on this album, you can hear some woodwinds, uh, definitely some fifes um, and, and a few clarinets as well. And what was interesting to me is that they made the decision to use modern woodwind instruments. And it's not because they weren't supplied with period instruments. Uh, they were given a few to try out, but um, 
they decided that there wasn't a discernible difference in the, the tone quality and given the slightly different fingering systems and finger placement of the period instruments they opted to use the modern clarinet and piccolo um so on this recording you've got a mix of period brass horns and modern woodwinds um so right away your mind jumps to intonation problems between the old and the new notwithstanding the intonation problems of the old brass band uh the old brass instruments themselves oftentimes their octaves were not true octaves and because the the compensating system of tubing that we have on a lot of modern day brass instruments that wasn't conceived yet um so these instruments were a little out of tune with themselves and what they ended up doing is compromising and they tuned to a 445 instead of a 440 if you most of the modern at least in the united states performing ensembles will tune to a 440 and that's just a science thing for for the pitch a 445 is a little bit higher than a 440 so if you ever try and play along to any of these recordings push your tuning slide in yeah and i know that the uh they spent all the beginning of each rehearsal trying to find that perfect spot to tune and it took a, a fairly significant amount of time because you know they they knew that they were aiming for 445 but the tuning was different every single rehearsal also so a significant part of each recording section was just getting all the instruments in tune with one another. Yeah. And I think um, that the, the album, you know, it pulls off. There are some very obvious in some of the exposed trumpet playing. Um, sometimes where I leaned up in my chair a little bit, cause one of the, hmm. on the higher notes were maybe a little flat, but I think overall it, it's very impressive how in tune they were able to get with each other. You mentioned how the, the woodwood instruments, how there wasn't really a discernible timbral difference between modern and period instruments, but it's interesting because that's a major aspect of Civil War brass bands, you know, especially recreation, uh, reenacting Civil War brass bands, the idea of using either period instruments or uh, reconstructed brass instruments, refurbished brass instruments, you know, all that kind of thing. They're, they're using over-the-shoulder sax horns for the purpose of timbre because there is such a big difference. While I was doing some of my doctoral work uh, at George Mason University, I actually did a, a spectrogram analysis of a brass band recording playing Maggie by my side on modern instruments and a brass band playing Maggie by my side on period instruments. And you could definitely see that the brass band that was using the period instruments, their sound was a lot darker, a lot mellower, a lot softer uh, in terms of texture, not necessarily volume. Uh, and it was extremely discernible. So it was really interesting seeing that using audio analyzing technology and actually seeing that timbral difference between the brass instruments. Yeah, I remember that presentation. And you can you can see it definitely on the, the spectrogram image. And then the, the last thing about the instruments that I thought was also interesting is that brass instruments at that time weren't designed with any type of spit valve on them. They were all, you know, the slides moved, but they were all fully encased instruments, so they had to take frequent water emptying breaks when they would uh, when they were doing these recording sessions, which I thought was kind of interesting because you know the recording sessions I've sat through, you know, you just you just do it, you just let it go. You don't have to pause for five minutes while twenty one brass players all are turning their instruments upside down and pulling a hundred year old slides out. So Man, that's, that's wild. Kinda, 
Yeah, I thought yeah, I was. I was taking a listen um, the other day to this album to get reacquainted with it. Did you hear any spots where you can hear, you know, that gurgling in a brass instrument when you've got water that you need to get rid of? Uh, I, I don't recall. Yeah, I don't think so either. So they they avoided that somehow. That's impressive. <laughs> well, I would hope that they want to keep. <laughs> well, like, but like, what like if my, you? It's like my middle school students when I. <laughs> Tell them to play a B flat scale, and they play the first B flat, and it sounds like they're like underwater, and then they play the whole scale, like with it sounding like that. <laughs> right. Like, uh, but yeah, I mean, I just wondered if there was any scenario where they were in the middle or towards the end of a really uh, good yeah. take, you know, and it and it comes through because they recorded this on, uh, on film, I think. Yeah, thirty five um, microfilm. Yeah. Yeah. So splicing together probably was not ideal so i i don't know i was just wondering if you heard any of that anywhere in the album because i certainly didn't no no it sounded pretty clean and pristine to me good stuff be interesting to maybe do a follow-up to this this episode uh sometime in the future if we are able to reach out to mercury be curious to see if there's you know raw takes of this album yeah i wonder how much of that stuff survived because we mentioned that the this recording was put on you know was helped funded through mercury's like special collections division so they at least have or had people at least in the 1960s that were dedicated to some degree of historical preservation so you would think that they would be pretty meticulous with their uh record keeping but then as i say that i'm reminded that we were told that mercury lps were never printed you know, stamped either on the the record itself or in the liner notes with any form of a date, which came up with the the controversy, the the confusion about whether the album was recorded in 1960 or in 1958. So yeah, actually, who knows about their their record keeping? But it'd be interesting to at least ask. True. Yeah. Maybe since it was a special collections project, maybe we've got a better shot there. But yeah. hey, Mercury, if you're listening, yeah. let us know. Fan mail number three. <laughs> <laughs> Again, all kinds of letters from this episode. I know. <laughs> so going into the, the music that was played on this album, we mentioned that there's narration, singing tracks, fife and drum, bugle as well. Yes, all that exists, but uh, you can go over to the narration podcast or the, the fife and drum podcast to... to hear their discussion about that music. We're going to focus mainly on the brass band music here and the musical selections that were picked by Frederick Fresnel uh, for this album is pretty uh, pretty clean. You know, it's organized pretty well and pretty clearly on the album. He has it split into Union Band music and Confederate Band music. For the Union Band, they read out of Port, the Port Royal Band books. These are books that are available uh, through the Library of Congress, you know, you can look that up on their website and look at the actual music that they read. Uh, the Port Royal Band was actually the 3rd New Hampshire Regiment Band. That band was under the direction of Gustavus Ingalls. Uh, in the Library of Congress, they actually, I think, not anymore, now they list, list it as the Port Royal Band, but at the time, they had this collection under the Ingalls book. Um, but an interesting thing, the 3rd New Hampshire Regiment Band uh, was a 22-piece band that was stationed in Port Royal, South Carolina for the majority of the war. 
There was only a small time in the middle where they were mustered out because of General Order 91 when the regimental bands were kind of downsized and they were changing to a brigade band system. But Ingalls Band was actually one of the bands that was then reinstated as one of those uh, brigade bands and they became the second brigade band of the 10th Army Corps and they resumed their their time in Port Royal. So due to their uh, longevity in Port Royal, South Carolina, they were dubbed the Port Royal Band. And the selections that were played on out of the Port Royal Band books uh, utilized a large ensemble of both mixed brass and woodwind instruments. So this is not for the Union Band music. It isn't pure brass band music. It has the woodwinds in it. <clears throat> An interesting thing that we noticed is that in the recording, they had the over-the-shoulder instruments pointing away from the crowd, you know, the seating of the Eastman Theater when they recorded this album. So they had the bells pointing out into the stands and the woodwinds facing out into the seats like normal also. Um, but Frederick Fennell stood in the back of the stage so that the brass could see him conducting. So the brass was pointing backwards, Fennell was pointing backwards, the woodwinds were pointing forwards, all said all the sound was going in the same direction, but the woodwinds then had rear view mirrors from a car that they attached to all their music stands and they looked through the rear view mirror to be able to see Fennell behind them even though they were pointing out it, it's a wacky setup there, there's an awesome picture in the liner notes that kind of shows it but um, yeah maybe we can throw that picture up in the show notes and it was funny to me when I was looking at that picture the brick wall that you see behind Frederick <laughs> Fennell that you know is still there I mean the Eastman Theater is still there that's where most of the concerts take place and that wall looks exactly the same in that picture as I remember it looking when I was in school there, like with the same, you know, pipes and little fire department outlet thing that's behind him. It was, it was funny to a, see. Did you ever have a moment standing on that stage, kind of having like a, whoa, like imagining like either Fennell himself or like anybody else that's been on that stage. Like that's a, a pretty, uh, well, nah, I don't know. I lost it. <laughs> well-traveled. It's a well-traveled, um, Yes. Well, maybe that's not it either. I don't know. But a lot of um, really phenomenal players have, have stood on that stage. You get that sense there with um, the Eastman Theater stage and the Kilburn Hall stage, the smaller recital hall. That's the older one. They have a, a, a second recital hall in the new building that they built, um, I don't know, probably 10 or 15 years ago. Um, but yeah, those, those two stages are they're special to stand on, for sure, if you ever get the chance to go up there and and make your way up up onto stage yeah, but i, I was reading um going looping back to the the uh, port royal band it was funny when when order 91 was it that abolished yep. the regimental yep. that that took a very long time to get to the port royal band because they were so deep in confederate territory and mm -hmm. by the time it got to them i was reading in the liner notes they had established themselves as a very important um almost societal fixture there playing music for different you know, functions in the town and, and everything. So I it the liner notes made it seem like because they had done so much and played for so many different types of things, that's why they were able to then be, you know, kind of reorganized into that uh the brigade band then after after the Order ninety one. So it's just they made themselves important and then they couldn't be done away with, I guess. <laughs> so knowing that uh they were playing music from the Union, some of the, the songs that appear on this portion of the album is Hail to the Chief, 
listen to the marking, Mockingbird sing, Palmyra Scottish, Hail Columbia, the French Shoots Quickstep, uh, a parade segment, Port Royal Gallop, which makes sense because they were the Port Royal band, Nightingale Waltz, and La Marseillaise, the, the French national anthem. So it's interesting, kind of rattling off some of those tunes right there. We tend to associate uh, Listen to the Mockingbird and La Marseillaise a little bit more with the Confederate side nowadays, but it just shows that uh, both sides were very active in performing all the music. You know, the, the North, the Union Army was singing Dixie as they were marching out to First Manassas, so this sharing of repertoire is apparent, you know, even in, in just looking at the, the Union rep on the CD. Yeah, and I think the liner notes for this album mentioned that, um, you know, if a Confederate band heard something, they heard the Union band play something they liked, they would try and copy it down into their books to kind of fill out, you know, some of the <laughs> categories of rep. You know, if there was a, a quick step that they liked and didn't know, they'd try and remember it and write it down for themselves and then play it. It's the first Napster. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The first uh, music pirating happened during the Civil War. Yeah. So that was the the band music utilized uh, from the Union side that was portrayed on this recording. Then the second half of the brass band music that was used on this recording was taken from the 26th North Carolina Regiment Band. Uh, this is the Confederate band music. The 26th North Carolina Regiment Band was uh, a mix of two different bands in North Carolina, the Salem Band and the Raleigh Band. They formed in 1961 as the 26th North Carolina Regiment was forming, and they were able to uh, form to create the regimental band associated with that regiment. Um, but an interesting thing is that uh, in the the Salem-Raleigh area, there's a big a big foothold of uh, Moravians down there, and the the Moravians have this very rich, very well documented music history uh, down there. So they and they still exist today, and they were able to maintain the the band books of the North Carolina 26th Regiment Band extremely well. Uh, it's something that you can still go down if you go to their museum. I believe it's down in Salem. Uh, yeah, you can you can still hear, uh, still look at their band music, and, and it's really cool uh, seeing that. It's interesting to note, or it's important to note, that the 26th North Carolina Regiment Band is one of the few bands that we have very good documentation for of uh, a Confederate brass band. We mentioned in episode one that there's not a ton of research done for Southern brass bands, but we definitely know that this was one of them, and we know that they were one of at least two brass bands present for the Confederacy during the Battle of Gettysburg in... Uh, 1863 so that was likely the band that Stephen referenced at the beginning of the episode uh, yeah with the quote yeah. from uh, that inspired Fennell yeah yeah I think I might have left that detail out when I was you know taking notes on the f taking notes on the liner notes as I was reading but yeah I th that was the band that that was mentioned there Gotcha. And then, unlike the Port Royal band, they Frederick Fennell decided for the, the Confederate music to use just a brass band, so there were no woodwinds involved in their recording. 
uh, and they used a smaller group. They only used seven musicians for uh, for the Confederate side of this album, whereas the the Port Royal side, the Union side, was well over twenty musicians. <laughs> So that's where the music came from uh, in on this recording, Civil War, its music and its sounds put out by the Eastman Wind Ensemble under Frederick Fennell. It's really interesting that, you know, they didn't pick their music from a huge variety of sources, you know, multiple different bands, multiple different books. They were able to stick to the 3rd New Hampshire, 3rd New Hampshire Regiment Band and the 26th North Carolina Regiment Band and have it be that cut and dry with you know, the rep that they picked, they just pulled it out from the period books that were that were used at the time. And that's a testament to how well-documented those particular bands were, um, that they were able to, you know, with, with minimal effort, um, pull this music out and, and put it together pretty quickly. I was reading that there, there were some um, times when it was challenging for Fennell to... Um, kind of make these arrangements or clean up the notation um, because of how faded the bar lines were. And he had an account where he actually used the covers, uh, the cover of the book where the staff lines were still imprinted on the, on the cover to then line up the notes on the pages within the book because the staff lines had faded, um, which I thought was funny. And he was detailing, I think it was one of the E flat bass books, one of the E flat tuba books yeah, it was, that it was actually it was actually the book that roger bobo read out of it was bobo's book yeah that i guess there was a hole in it from a from a, a musket ball or something or a mini ball i guess is, is the bullet that was used in the civil war um that hey maybe this book of band music saved someone at some point along the way <laughs> yeah maybe <laughs> <laughs> so we've already mentioned a lot of the kind of little interesting tidbits we have here but um what was i gonna say uh, a, a tidbit that we actually mentioned when we were teasing this episode in episode one was that ken burns told finnell that uh listening to this album really inspired him to sort through some civil war photographies and that's what led to um you know the ken burns civil war documentary that i'm sure most of us have have seen at least part of yeah and then this we said that Frederick Fennell was a huge history buff, so he didn't, you know, get his fill once he was done recording this album with the Eastman Wind Ensemble. Uh, a few other Civil War projects that Fennell had throughout his life. He was involved in the sequel album for the Empire Brass Quintet and Friends, the American Brass Band Journal Revisited. It's when they were using, uh, instead of the uh, Brass Band Journal music, they were looking at Stratton Military Band Journal music. And that album came out in 1978 as a sequel to the 1976 original album. Uh, Frederick Fennell also appeared as a guest, conduct guest conductor in 1990 on the album Civil War Favorites, put out by the 8th Georgia Regiment Band. Uh, our intro music that we use is actually conducted by Frederick Fennell. It's put out by the Library of Congress, utilizing a bunch of local D.C. musicians on an album titled Our Musical Past that was put out in 1976. Uh, Frederick Fennell was honored as the honorary director and a special guest conductor of the National Civil War Festival that was hosted in 2000 and 2003 in Campbellsville, Kentucky. And kind of circling all the way back to right before 
to before all this, after this album came out, he was honored by the uh, commit the Congressional Committee for the Centennial of the Civil War in 1961 with a medal uh, for the original 1960 recording that he put out. So not only was he involved in numerous projects after this Eastman recording, not only was he the source of inspiration for Ken Burns's documentary, uh, he also received a medal from the Congressional Committee. So his uh, the scope of the influence of this album can definitely not be understated. So this whole episode focused on um, the 1960 East Moon Ensemble, Frederick Fennell, um, recording the Civil War, its music and sounds. That That is our featured album. Um, so our, up on the website, uh, that's eabbpodcast.com, in the show notes section, um, we'll you have links for you to go listen to the album. It's on Spotify. It's on Naxos. You can buy the, it's, it's readily available, the CD re-release. So we'll have some links for you there. Um, and that is, like we said, that's, that's the featured album for this episode. And we really hope you go listen to it and we hope you enjoy it as much as we both do. Um, it really, if you couldn't tell from the episode, it's just dripping with, with history. And if you buy the album, do read through the liner notes because they're they're very thorough and very interesting if if this subject interests you at all and be aware that the cd is missing four of the tracks from the lp (laughs) right yeah so So maybe if you've got a turntable and you can find a copy of the lp um then you can listen to the whole the whole thing yeah if you're able to extract audio maybe send us the four tracks that are missing (laughs) yeah And if you do that, you can send us an email at eabb.podcast at gmail.com. Either send us that recording that we want or, uh, you know, send us any uh, requests or questions that you have. We'd love to talk to you. Love to hear uh, what you think of what we're doing here. So we hope you join us on April 15th. Uh, It's a Wednesday. That'll be the release of our third episode. It'll feature uh, Dr. Mark Jenkins. He'll be talking to us about uh, the Marine Band during the 19th century and uh, technological innovations of the baritone and euphonium that occurred during that time also. So we really hope that you join us uh, in two weeks for episode number three. We want to thank you all again for tuning in and hearing us talk about Frederick Fennell and the Eastman Wind Ensemble. We'll look forward to seeing you next time. Thank yeah, you. thanks, everybody. Talk to you then. Thank you.